and welcome. This is Ukraine World Podcast, a podcast about Ukrainian developments in English. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, and today we're talking about Crimea. We're talking with Natalia Humenyuk, a prominent Ukrainian journalist who just published a book about Crimea, which is called Lost Island. Natalia, hello. Hi, good to hear you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, you're a very well-known journalist, one of the best-known Ukrainian reporters abroad and in the country, and probably one of the fewest people who basically went to Crimea systematically uh, uh, after this illegal annexation by Russia in 2014. I think seven times you've been there, right? Yeah, I've been seven times, and in every trip I try to spend some time there and to travel uh, around the uh, different towns. And uh, the whole idea is that I happen to be in Crimea, not for the first time, but on, uh, for the first time since the start of the war at this day of the so-called referendum. And I went on. And uh, then it happened. There were a lot of journalists at that day, but later most of them, they dropped, uh, especially foreign reporters, Russian reporters, many Ukrainians. Um, now we have some a few, a few brilliant reporters who try to explain what's going on. But I got this... I've been lucky, I'm lucky probably uh, by having this chance to be there. <clears throat> Sorry. I think that what happened to me especially that uh, I happened to be there in the very beginning of the annexation and went on every year. So therefore I was able to observe how the island, how the peninsula is changing within these years because it's not so obvious for many people. Uh, but after like Those already six years, you mentioned how this silent occupation is just overtaking everybody's life. Let's let's start with the metaphor, lost island. So it's it's not a peninsula for you, it's an island. And basically this metaphor already lived in Ukrainian uh, discourse, uh, a metaphor of an island. Why is an island? Look, the first thing... Um, It feels like the in the mentality today, Crimea is like an island. It's really separated, unfortunately, but it is. And also it feels like the people in the Crimea have this um, island mentality when they are away from everybody. And I think in some of the chapters, for instance, when I've been to Kerch during the mass shooting in school in 2018, and I happen to be the only journalist uh, from Ukraine mainland in Kerch, it was very clear how far away is everything from Crimea, both Moscow, Kiev, and the world. But I should explain that it probably won't be clear for the Ukraine for the foreign audience, but for the Ukrainian, there are two words for the lost in Ukrainian. There is a word zahublene, which is lost, and like vtrachene, it's something you lost forever. So uh, I picked up the world, which means that you just lost something and you can find it. You know, like you drop the key uh, in the prob, you know, like you've been busy with something else. You didn't miss how you lost something. And I in particular deliberately use this word because I think that was partly Ukrainians didn't really mention how even in the March 2014, this, uh, because of the Russian annexation, of course, but this peninsula just like become an island for for the rest of the world. And I think it's important to, that you mentioned this zahublene, not vtrachene, because uh, basically there is this uh, fatalism among some Ukrainians, among some international people that that Crimea is lost. And I think that you're fighting against this fatalism. Uh, you, you, you're quoting, for example, Crimean uh Crimean Tatar activists who are saying saying that, that that's basically dramatic that people think so, right? 
I think that it's it's really the 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 the, the core story of the book and why I want it to be universal, uh, because it's. Generally, and why? What I want to make with this book for foreigners, for Ukrainians, for everybody. Too many people say Crimea is gone, and like there is no like really mass persecution. You know, of course there are, you know, um, dozens of the political prisoners, but it's not really like a hot conflict where there are bombs, where there are everyday deaths. So it feels like it's maybe okay. You know, like so what? It's not so bad, and. I was trying to show this silent uh, violence, you know, structural violence against people, this pain which is every day, which is very not not loud that not not that loud, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't solve it. Uh, therefore, what I'm kind of yelling that doesn't matter even though this. Um, tragedies are not so outspoken as in the hot conflict. It doesn't mean that every day should be tolerated. That another day of annexation of Crimea is annexation. It's a tragedy for somebody. So it can't be tolerated and you say like, okay, let's live for another 20 years. Because every day makes life of people different, harder. Uh, and like it ruins the life of many people. And maybe it's not an absolute majority because there is no conflict in the world unless it's really like war um, that everybody is affected. But it's enough people affected every day um, that the, let's say, so-called majority uh, cannot just pretend it's not happening. Let's let's talk a little bit about those people who are affected and let's come back to those events, basically, February and March 2014. Uh, you, you've been there, you, you, you were observing, and you were describing this ambience in your book, but you're talking a lot with people who did not accept it, with Crimean Tatars, with Ukrainians, who are basically trying to boycott it. And uh, there was a big uh, a big force at the time. We remember those meetings, pro-Ukrainian meetings, which were organized by Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars against uh, the, the whole thing. What can you say about those times? You know, it's. I think it is interesting because everybody has this memory of the rallies uh, in Simferopol, for instance, with the uh, blue-yellow Ukrainian flags. But they were mainly after like 26th of February till the um, uh, March 16th. I should also claim that there were not too many journalists right after the referendum, and I stayed. And that still, after six years, it's drastic for me that I remember very well how a day, a few days after, they were just gone as if it was a long time ago. Because, for instance, the last rally was on Saturday. On Sunday, there was a referendum. On Monday, people were already cautious to speak on camera and the next day they were even cautious to speak on phone and on Wednesday they were cautious to meet journalists. So that's like how this freedom uh, and everything, liberty, just evaporated within the days and hours. You, you describe so it, it in your book that basically the situation was changing every hour, right? That, that was and and somehow after the, uh, we, we should remember that it's like the efficient control of the Russian troops in Crimea. So it's not just you can really do something about that, have a rally after that. Uh, but yes, it was, uh, it, it just becomes silent as, as if it's like, you know, like some dictatorship are developing very slow, but there it just, you've got the like a proper real dictatorship within the few days and it stayed until now. 
what how can you describe the situation of Crimean Tatars from that moment until now? I think that look I should probably explain that there are around 300,000 Crimean Tatars. A uh, bit less than 30,000 had to move uh, to the mainland Ukraine. Uh it's very I think important to stress for the foreign audience that the Crimean Tatars therefore they under the threat there is a national idea to stay in Crimea because they've been deported in uh, by Stalin during the Second World War. So for them it's the key to stay doesn't matter what. So the people who are leaving are just those who are fearing the direct persecution or imprisonment and it's true that they were always you know like they are they were supporters of the Ukrainian independence because after the Ukrainian independence and the fall of the Soviet Union they were allowed to come back uh and they are afraid of the Russian state because what i felt especially now um that i think like russia efficiently used this uh method of of portraying this Muslim community as possible extremist or terrorist. The Crimean Tatars are, of course, the Muslim community, but it's rather secular community. And they were known for non- non-violent resistance. Up till now, there was never any terrorist attack in Crimea by a Crimean Tatar. It just not existing. It's just a different, you know, ethnic group. But somehow we know that there is the Islamic terrorism in Russia in Caucasus and there are a lot of people who are from coming from law enforcement from those regions and they have this they are taking the practice how you deal with the jihadism for instance in the Caucasus and try to uh, play the same in Crimea creating this image uh, which is you know um, totally not fitting to the place because i said like it doesn't have any ground but the problem is that like if the tatars are practicing or if they were used to be active in their political life uh, they could be accused of the either um terrorism or uh, extremism so we have now 67 uh, up at this moment uh, political prisoners uh Crimean Tatars in the cases connected to their most probably to their religion uh, all those people have 168 kids who are now living without parents all those cases are mainly like clearly fabricated so yeah it's really tough uh, of course i should say that people though they are very vocal community still i guess it's quite tricky for people who not uh political because there is always there is a majority of people who are not political to really be very outspoken um so um now there is a very interesting you know solidarity movement there it's very strong uh it feels that they are so strong that maybe the the state won't attack them but but what they are trying to do they are like catching one person another person little by little so there are more and more people who probably should be afraid in order to speak out against annexation you mentioned that there are so many uh, like over 60 right political prisoners uh, crimean tatars crimean tatars were not this part of these exchanges that uh, ukraine had with russia uh, the exchanges which were very uh, I mean you you describe them as well they were very important for Ukrainian uh people especially for the relatives of the political prisoners but Crimean Tatars were in the majority except a few exceptions excluded why Uh but look I think that the the the, the there is a uh, I I talked to the lawyers uh of of those people because there are maybe the, sometimes the same lawyers for for instance the political prisoners who'd been 
exchanged. Like, you know, the same lawyer was for Karpuch, Klich, uh, but, or, and for the uh, Ukrainian uh, soldiers who were prisoners. Uh, but they, they really explained that each time, especially for the first exchange, there was a quite a small list. Uh, I think that there is a trouble about that because I think that Russia may consider them Russian citizens that this is a different things that they are they may claim that like why we should give this people because we clearly okay we understand we kind of arrested some ukrainian pro ukrainian activist you know and yes he's ukrainian so kind of there is a logic in that of course they are the ukrainian citizens but maybe because this arrest happened in 2017 2018 2019 they may claim that you know these are our prisoners We haven't taken them from uh, mainland Ukraine. They're not from Donbass. They're from Crimea. We own. Uh, so maybe that is the, 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 the that is a real complications and concern for the Ukrainian state to to kind of to argue that you know those people uh, are the same political prisoners. They are not usual criminals as you know Russia have in their territory. But do you have the impression that those people are basically hostages, that Russia can take them, as you mentioned, all the time, the new ones and new ones, and they are in, in a very fragile situation? I think more than these particularly are people, this is the instrument of the threat to the Crimean Tatar population and for everybody. More like, you know, like not just keeping them, it's more, it's not just taking them in order to exchange Uh, as it happens at Donbass. I think in this regard, it's more like to show that everybody who is a bit active could be behind bars for 20 years, charged with terrorism. And if it's charged with terrorism, you you can do you cannot do much. You mentioned the the stories of people who were refusing Russian passports. Uh, and uh, we know the story that uh, basically it was kind of a Uh, obligation to passportize, but those people who refused it, they just received a temporary resident permits. And even even if they were living in Crimea for for the whole life, is it another form of pressure? Uh, it definitely is. Uh, there were, I should admit, not that many people who ad- who officially. Uh, denied to take Russian passports in uh, 2014. However, it doesn't mean that everybody taken them because, you know, they've taken in, they've made it in order to have the residence permit. But of course, it's a pressure because uh, you can be kicked out with this law um, if you, for instance, you know, have some administrative uh, problem or something, you've done something something wrong and after like one, two, three cases like that, you can be kicked out and Crimea is your only place. I think even more drastic for me, the story, I think I mentioned that uh, for a lady who built her house in, and, and she is now around in her 70s, she built her house 50 years ago. She is one of those people who denied to take Russian passport. So she need have a huge uh, huge amount of things she has to do with her documents and in the end because there were some formalities she couldn't register the house on herself the house she built 50 years ago doesn't belong to her she was refused to get the ownership so these things are happening i said like these are exactly what i meant by this silent structural violence which is not so obvious but if you look at the particular individual uh, that's 
quite a quite a big and thing. it's basically those people have nowhere to address even i mean if we take this new constitutional amendments in russia which basically says that international courts like european courts of human rights are no longer uh not so much valid not so much above the russian national law Oh, sure, but there are too many, you know, like, yeah, this is another form of all kind of legal restrictions that the people, the, the people have there. You tell also, tell the readers, us the stories about uh, a category of people who are basically also uh, forgotten, the, the drug addicts who, who received under Ukrainian legislation the methadone therapy the uh, replacive therapy and now refused by by russian legislation many of them die or commit suicide yeah that's also the the, the really the tragic story it was not very much covered by also foreign press uh, yeah it's it's a very peculiar a particular case because there were really 800 people in 2014 who uh, were under the methadone substitution therapy, which is forbidden in Russia. And that's the therapy which um, given them life. And I talked to some of them. Unfortunately, and I'm very sad about that, there was no chance for me to follow every story and, you know, like to stay on this story. But last year when I traveled, I had this aim to find out what happened to them. Uh, and yes, I found out that one girl I talked in 2014 died. And it was very difficult to talk to the people um, because what I should also explain, those who remained, uh, according to the Russian law, of course, they use some other type of drugs. You know, if there is no substitution therapy, what they do? They have street drugs. You know, you know, you, you can't change that. So they are pro probably criminals. So they are under huge, uh, huge threat. Um, but I talked to them. They claim that, you know, half of them died, half of 800 people. I couldn't really uh, check fully this figure also because there is no registry. The registry had been shut down for the media, for the human rights organization some time ago. So there is no place where you would have the list of these 800 people and that the hospital would give you what happened to them. So we needed really to investigate, to talk to individuals, to have the very general feeling. But it's true that really, like really many people passed away. It's five, six years for people who had to move from the... Uh, hospital um, therapy to the street drugs. You can just imagine. You know, it, it, it's a very painful and tragic story. And there is also very, very tough laws uh, in Russia regarding the uh, people consuming drugs. When I read your book, I also noticed that you mentioned lots of stories when people are afraid to talk and basically that you can't find them after the first interview several years ago that people might have changed their phone numbers. Is it really a fear uh, among the, the, the Crimean people, among Ukrainians, Russians, Crimean Tatars, really to, to, to tell what they think? First of all, there is a practical reason. Of course, we have there are political prisoners, so there is clearly... Uh, we clearly know what happens to, to those who speak out. For instance, yes, we talked to uh, Volodymyr Baloch, in, there was my colleague in early 2015, who told his story when he stayed with the Ukrainian flag 
at his house. And he was very outspoken. But in the end, after that story we run, uh, he was arrested. Uh, he, he was in, in prison in Russia. He was exchanged this last autumn. But I also say that, you know, I think that there is another obvious question, like what's happening to those people who like the annexation or who support Russia? Uh, they're also existing, of course. But I think the majority of the people, uh, why it's so difficult to talk to them, um, they are majority obviously is not the political fighters. They are not political activists. But I think that's the main reason why they don't want to risk at all. Like if you're not doing... Uh, so for me, the most challenging part was really... Uh, and I tried a lot to talk to this usual apolitical people who say that, you know, just to understand, you know, that, because that's a usual also question, you know, what's happening to usual people, not those freedom fighters, not those, you know, like famous heroes or something, uh, because that's more or less giving us the feeling what's happening. Uh, and they are very cautious because they think like, okay, maybe we don't do anything, but who knows what happened to us if we would become outspoken um, so uh, I think that it, officially in Russia you are not allowed to challenge the fact of the uh, the, 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 the Crimea isn't Russian so you can't uh, legally use the words you know annexation occupation the Russian media are not allowed to use these words because the media could be shut down so there is this level of the self-censorship as well so there are just, you know, I, I won't say that, you know, I, I wonder what would happen to the person if uh, just a normal guy would say something to you. But why to risk? For what? You also talked about with people who supported the annexation and uh, what's what's their attitude to Ukraine? What's their attitude to, to the events? Why they support it? Uh, and are people really happy about what's happening? I think that the book uh, takes place in the course of like six years. Um, obviously, within the um, it's it's true that uh, in the beginning, uh, in the time of the annexation, there was a kind of euphoria of the perfect life we wish had come, not corrupt, because it was said like Ukraine is corrupt, Russia is not corrupt, Russia is super rich, it's richer than I don't know like European Union. So there were a lot of a lot of different like promises given the promises to the you know teachers that the salaries would be good the promises to the university students who were studying in the university with the money that they couldn't study for free you know like all kind of promises that there won't be corruption that the plants and enterprises which were shut down after the soviet union that they would work again so there were all this very very practical hope that you know russia is rich and there would be the the great infrastructure the salaries would be high um Probably you can say that today there are still a lot of people who kind of, you know, I, I should, we are, we are, you know, as an honest reporter, there are a lot of, a lot of money invested into Crimea. It's quite obvious, you know, the uh, there is a lot of infrastructure projects, the roads are built, the hospitals are built. Um, you know, some Crimeans are laughing that, you know, that it's a bit of the... The way that a lot of money are just not very efficiently used, there is a high level corruption, but Russia puts more money into Crimea than in any other Russian region. Um, so we, we can't deny that. Uh, but of course, the life in Russia, it's not the you know communist dream. It's a, like very capitalist society. So for instance, I talked to uh, some of the people who are really this Soviet nostalgic. 
who were activists of this Krimnash uh, movement in 2014. And they are very disappointed. There are other kind of oligarchs coming that the, it's capitalism. It's not socialism any longer. However, for instance, by the ethnicity, they, they feel that they're Soviet people. So they still believe in all this kind of uh, not really believe, but still uh, telling the stories about Ukrainian fascists. They know it's not true, but they just can't can't admit that they were wrong. So there is the transformation uh, of the uh, mentality. A lot of people try to find the excuse why they should just adjust to what's going on, mainly also because they don't see the way out. Uh, there is lots of talk that Russia is trying to change the demographic situation in Crimea, that many Russians from mainland Russia are coming, uh, buying houses, establishing there. Is it true? Sure. The region is very much uh, russified in a way that, uh, of course, it's quite a nice piece of land. So uh, if somebody wants to, you know, buy a house in Siberia, uh, take a rent, take a loan, a mortgage, why not to make it in Yalta or Simferopol? Yeah, that's the first thing. For a young family in Russia, why not to move? It's the same for them, you know. Uh, so they're really moving a lot. And also the most of the civil servants Russia wants to have, the because it's very like the state which has a lot of civil servants, law enforcement, police, security service, uh, military. Uh, so uh, they are coming with their families. So you really see that a lot, especially in the Crimean capital, Simferopol. Uh, it's just kind of obvious. It's not cheap there. It's, you know, probably as expensive as in Moscow. Uh, so, uh, but it's deliberate, but it somehow felt like, for me, inevitable in this way. Why not? So you really see that, you know, a lot of Russian goods there, you know, every, you know, there are all the geographic names connected to, I don't know, Far East Russia, Siberia. And that's, I mean, sadly exotic. You know, when you see, hear all this, you know, um, you, you, I, I remember this moment I also described when you in Yalta, this is the resort where there are the palms. And all of a sudden there is a radio announcement on the streets about something's happening on Kamchatka or Siberia. And it's just out of place for you. And you can't imagine that it happens. But yes, it feels like that from Kamchatka to Yalta, they're building this this space and I think it's something which is not very much thought here you know I mean in case you know when I'm saying in case but when there would be the deoccupation it just a lot of space is taking you know it, it's filled uh, this uh, with the with the Russian state there is also an analysis that Crimea is becoming a military base, a huge military base of Russia, and uh, it's a threat for both Middle East and Europe. What can you say about it? I'm, you know, I have a very particular reporting. I'm concentrating on human stories, and I should say that I have like always still, while though traveling, quite a rec restricted access to many areas. Um, it was always heavily militarized. It's definitely there are more of them. Uh, Sevastopol indeed is becoming more like a military fortress uh, rather than the 
touristic um, city. Um, so it's there, uh, but I think it's it's all together: military, law enforcement, security service, all kind of the civil so- servants all all together. Um, it's you know yes, it's becoming crowded as more people are coming. Um, I, I won't really, you know, you know, I think like the fact that the Ukrainian uh, soldiers had been captured at the Kerch Strait um, two years, you know, it's already uh, two years ago, uh, also showed that, yes, there is the, the, the Russian army, Russian fleet there in order to, re- like, it's heavily guarded region. Maybe one of the last questions, what is your like analysis, what Ukraine should do and what the world should do about all this, about the annexation and uh, about the situation when, yes, we should not give up, but at the same time, it's very naive to expect the, the, the occupation in, in short time. I think that, you know, um, though as the author, of course, I want the book is read by by many outside of Ukraine, but it's first of all aimed at Ukrainians, uh, where I'm also trying to explain to the Ukrainians that reality is changing. You can't really just think of Crimea how you thought about it in 2014 before annexation, as most of the Ukrainians remember it, uh, that their new genera- generation is growing up. There is the, you know, the, the kids going to the school who were born already after the annexation. And there could should be a very, very uh, deliberate strategy in order how you really, you know, that the, the Crimea is not an island, that you really... That is, it's a part of the country. I think there are a lot of discussion in Ukraine, you know, like, should we go there and report as a journalist? Uh, should we know what's going on there? Uh, and I think that mentally for many, uh, and I have to admit that it's like, you know, it's really gone in a way that people are not very much interested in what's going on there. People don't know what's going on there. Um, they live with their myths and stereotypes. But I think the best Ukrainian state can do and the Ukrainians can do just really understand all the time, be vigilant. I think all these very practical things uh, which uh, matter for people are very critical, you know, the uh, convenient way to cross these checkpoints. Like the legal system which favors, um, which make people favor Ukraine. For instance, now it's super difficult for the kids from Crimea to study in Ukraine. You know, they don't have information enough. It's parents think it's dangerous. There is So there, there should be some tools made which makes Crimea and Crimean population more attached to the mainland. But, for example, the debate right now is should Ukraine uh, uh, renew water supply to Crimea? And uh, I was surprised that many Crimean Tatars that you interviewed are basically for the cuts of water supply. Some of them, yes. Some of them, not, I think. And, you know, I think I haven't answered any question about I'm I'm not an expert on that Uh, but when this discussion is taking place now I've heard uh, many you know people here in Kiev saying like there is no discussion I have no opinion no strong opinion on that it's true that the cost should be to the occupier so as a uh, occupier Russia should pay for this water and Russia can afford it but for me it's still hard to admit you know, and you know, after listening to me, I mean, I've written this book. I've been there. You can hardly say I'm, I'm a supporter of annexation of Crimea, but 
I'm not 100% confident that not providing the water is the right decision. So it doesn't mean that if you really don't think that way, that you're like pro-Russian if you have this decision. And I think this is the um, discussion we also need to have. Um, maybe it's not just about the water. Uh, I, I I think that it's true that there would be always some people who are ready to, you know, uh, doesn't matter what, they, they would be very uh, civically engaged, they would be citizens of Ukraine, they would maybe fight, they would do things. Uh, but yes, for me, it's still also the fight for the hearts and minds. Uh, it, okay, Ukraine can't do too much. Uh, Russia is too present there. But I think Ukraine can do this maximum in order not to push people away. Uh, at least that they feel that they are welcomed um, whatsoever. Uh, and, uh, but also, of course, important mention to the world. And I think the, the world speaking about Crimea, should again remind about the idea of the human security. That the modern conflict, it's about human security. And it's quite a normal concept in the Western discussion for the last decades. But all of a sudden, in case of Crimea, people forgot about that. It's again just about geopolitics. It's something for me like very 20th century because it's a human security. Hum there is no security for people there. And it's not about like who is going to NATO, what are, I think that th this discussion, uh, discussion about Crimea shouldn't be just about the role of Russia in geopolitics of like Ukraine aspiration to the NATO and discussed like this big countries discussing between. This discussion probably should take place, you know, separately. But it doesn't mean that at this moment people are not suffering and that all those uh, routine violence, routine tra tragedy and suffering, uh, they just can't be not mentioned. And if anything could be done to easier the life of the people, that's what the global community should do. And of course, not the by thing that all is fine there, you know, that people wanted that. That's just not true. And I'm not even like gonna to get into this idea like how many people voted in this sham referendum. I think that there there is enough evidence. A lot of people, when I, I sometimes mention in some of the, you know, like trips where like, oh, you've been to Crimea. And I think that people pretend that it's impossible to get information about from there, especially from abroad. Like, oh, so you know what's going on there. It's like, yes, it's possible to know what's going on there. It looks like people don't want to know what's going on, on there because if you know what's going on in Crimea, you need to act. You need to respond. Uh, but I, of course, there is not enough willingness to do that. I hope that your book will be very well perceived in, in Ukraine and I hope it will be also translated into English. I wish you the uh, quickest translation possible. I can say that uh, a reader of this book in Ukraine, that it's really not only for Ukrainian audience. I think it's a, it's a perfect, wonderful reporting book for, for global audience. So wish you good luck with that and thanks so much for your reporting. This was Natalia Huminyuk, one of the prominent Ukrainian journalists. And we talked about Crimea and her book about Crimea, which is which will be published soon, which is called uh, Lost Island. This was Ukraine World Podcast. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. Stay with us. Mm -hmm.